0: Hey everyone, this is Matt Anderson and you're listening to the Proximity Process Podcast. The show is an invitation into a growing community. It's a conversation about how systems change actually starts with personal transformation. The change that we want to see, it starts with us. All right, so I am feeling excited to bring you today's episode. And honestly, I'm actually feeling humbled. This episode is part one of a two part conversation that I had with my friend Corey Best. And Corey was a a guest, actually, episode one of of the podcast. And for those of you that don't know, Corey is among other things, he's the the founder of Mining for Gold, an organization that's part of the larger movement that is an active pursuit of racial justice, liberation, and belonging. So this is going to be part one of a two-part conversation. Corey and I cover a lot of ground over these two episodes, but the conversation that we have it really centers around ASFA, the Adoption and Safe Families Act, TPR, Termination of Parental Rights, and Corey's relationship to this policy that was passed back in 1997. So normally, I ask people to come on the show because... I want to talk to them about something specific, something I know about them that I'm curious about, or maybe part of their process that relates to my process. And so I I reached out to Corey at the beginning of January because I had heard him say something that sparked my curiosity I wanted to uh, talk to him about. And so Corey and I hop on a phone call, and when we were talking, he says to me, Matt, I have a completely new understanding of what freedom means to me. It, and he said this as if something like monumental had just happened to him. We keep talking, and as it turns out, something monumental did just happen in his life. What he told me was that just a week prior to the conversation that we were having, he had talked with his son, Corey, or or he he calls him Deuce. He had talked to Deuce for the first time in 19 years. And as we were having that conversation, what I knew but didn't really know much about was that Corey's rights were terminated back in 2004 when his son was just three years old. Corey had not talked to his son, had not been in contact, in relationship with his son for 19 years. And he was telling me about this experience of reconnecting. And we decided that we would record a conversation about Corey reconnecting, rebuilding relationship with his son, and what that means in terms of his relationship to ASFA and to TPR, and even what he wants to say publicly about his thoughts, his perspective on ASFA and TPR, and what, what he thinks you know needs to happen next. So that's what we decided to do. And over these next two episodes, we're going to weave our way through all of that. And I think that you're going to, to take a lot away from this. I think you're going to enjoy the conversation that we're having and the perspective that we're bringing. And where we start the the conversation is, you know, me asking Corey, what happened? What brought him to this completely new understanding of what freedom means to him? We had a call on January 10th, so just like a few weeks ago. And so we we talked, and you started the conversation from a place of like, okay, something monumental just happened, <laughs> and you said to me something to the extent of, Matt, I have a completely new understanding of what freedom means. So what w- what what had happened? Let's start there. What had happened that led to this this new understanding of freedom?
1: Oh, Matt, you know when I uh, when we spoke on. He said January tenth. So, not even a full ten days before that. Right after nineteen years of really attempting to to make things visible, right, and and really understand what had happened in in my life, and this has been an ongoing journey, right, of of really self discovery and discovering that in the in the world that I lived, certain things have have happened. And then I started to understand that uh societally speaking, uh systemic harms have happened and ruptured sort of relationships that I have with others and also specifically with my twenty two year old son, right? So so this is a this is a nineteen year journey that Sort of, it, it it took a different turn. Uh, it evolved. Let's say that, right? So, there were some experiences that had been date stamped back in two thousand and four, and that experience to to some is destructive to myself as well. Destructive, and you know the way that it all went down with termination of parental rights. One might imagine if they were writing the story themselves. That would happen ten days before you and I talked would never have happened, and so yeah. for nineteen years I've held out this held on to this hope because hope is a discipline, Matt. Right? I held on to this hope even even having no evidence that uh, in two thousand and twenty four on January third, right, that my son and I would have our first conversation since he was three years old right and, and, and so so when you when you hit me up yeah all of that was rattling right Right. <laughs> it, it, i mean it, it's still rattling there's still, still vibration yeah and you know i'll just say matt like as we record right now today i'm six hours away from a flight to tennessee To see him for the first time in 19 years. Wow. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Like, what? We're going to get into more of this, Corey, but I, because I wasn't expecting that, to be quite honest. Um, Now I'm like, what are the feelings right now of like six hours away from seeing your son for the first time in 19 years?
1: Oh, man. I, I don't know them all. I, I am unable to articulate them all, but I will say, freedom is one. I have felt that I've been in captivity for a very long time, and a part of that captivity, Matt has, has allowed me to sort of heal in isolation, right? Only with a select group of people, only certain people. I felt that could hold uh, the magnitude and the velocity of that particular experience and you know it, it's it's exhilarating. It is uh there's a lot of fear, right? There is caution because I want to go in fast and you know all these things. And there's also the unknown, right? I don't know uh exactly what the script is to parent a twenty two year old after nineteen years and you know there's a there's a nuance here. The day that we talked, that's the same day he found out that he was adopted. So, so my hope and my plan, right, you know, you know what the good Lord says about best laid plans, you just leave them aside, right? <laughs> but my, my right. plan was to have this conversation in a familiar way, meaning his adoptive parents, myself, mm. him, and this coming together. So there are a lot of uh unexpected ebbs and flows in this what do we, you know, just a month away. But I'll say, Matt, that where I am as far as e- emotions, it's really understanding that I, I'm able at this point in my life to to really speak with him, love with him, connect with him from scars, not wounds, right? So so I don't have uh I don't have a whole lot of animosity any longer about what happened to me, right? So there's no guilt and shame there. And and I'm not having this right. when I say guilt and shame that there's no guilt and shame about uh being the type of parent that ever did anything horrible to my son because that's not my story. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you if you let the legal dependency system Tell me otherwise, and I would be out on the street right now, never to to return to humanity and have been thrown away from society. And that's what I felt like for nineteen years. That was the attempt to me, and that attempt shows up in many ways today. So I'm having this conversation with you not only because I'm I'm just stoked and excited about life, yeah, right. I have been that, but I'm I feel liberated like there is there has been a a chain removed right
0: yeah
1: that that isn't holding me back from understanding a fuller story right a a, a richer story one that is steeped deeply in in nothing other than than love um so there are lots of truths that i have uh tried to examine Over the 19 years, and when I examine those, Matt, it it goes back to something that we often talk about, and that's, you know, why do we attempt to punish people in the way that we do through terminating
0: parents' rights? And that, you know, you, you, you said a lot there, and one of the things, though, that I'm kind of picking up on is this, you know, you're not carrying guilt and shame. Right, and I think that's I think that's really interesting, and I'm not surprised by that. But, but if if the dependency court was right about who Corey is as as the man, as the father, as the human, then you should be carrying guilt and shame because you're a bad person. If they're right, but they're not, they're not right. They weren't right, and so you're not carrying that guilt and shame because that's not yours to carry.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, so. When I look at it through the lens of of pain, Matt. Yeah. So let's just start with with pain. So we've all, to some way and in, in some way or another, caused pain, and we've also, in one way or another, been wounded, right? Yeah. And for me to hold on to guilt and shame would not have allowed me to heal and stand 10 toes down on the strength in my own uh, humanity. Mm-hmm. And so what I mean exactly by that, and I, I want I want us to, to really understand not only the legacy of America, but that, that there's always been judgment and criminalization on people whose systems or courts deemed did something wrong, right? There's always right. been that. And then this this type of punishment was seen and is seen today as good for the bad guy, right? Right. And amazing for the child and even better for the system, right? Right. Now, believing that, and I did for Mm -hmm. two plus years, right? When Rice was terminated in, in 2004, I believed all that garbage, man. I I, I believed the rhetoric. I believed stories that I didn't even know were being told about me. And so I consumed that. And Matt, in consuming that, I didn't realize that I was suppressing certain things. And one thing that I was suppressing is the ability to touch what that pain meant to me and throw it out there and analyze it ask myself the hard questions how do you feel about this what did you really do look at yourself in the mirror like putting myself through an own boot camp like and that shit was hard right because i'm i
0: I got peanut gallery in my head and that pain matt was dirty Mm, it was dirty and lonely in a sense like i'm I'm imagining you in 2004 2007 like yeah dealing with that stuff kind of alone, which is, and maybe that's not true, but that's one of the things I think about with like, okay, termination of parental rights. I had a a foster parent say to me one time that I have no use for this mother.
1: Mm. So I want to let's, let's go there, but I just so we can kind of illustrate it a little bit what I mean by dirty pain. Okay. So in 2015, 2016, I was working in the legal dependency advocacy space. There's a mom who I'm like the parent partner on her case. And this is back in the day before things were institutionalized. So like the judge would let me like sit and advocate for the parents. Right. So mom, long story short, mom is facing GPR trial. They're going to make a decision that day. And her attorney and a mental health therapist attempted to say you have an opportunity to surrender your rights. Now, when they said that in the hall of the courtroom here in Florida, that brought back all of these memories because that same Mm. question was given to me, right? And she looks at me and she says, what should I do? And I said, I can't, like, I, I, I can't, Tell you what you should do, but I'll tell you what I wouldn't do. And if I were you, I would be doing exactly what you would be doing. I'm just telling you that it was impossible for me to surrender my rights. Like I told her, they have to come and just snatch them. Like they got to take it. Right. (laughs) Like, and so. To, to kind of metabolize what I mean by dirty pain, what were some of the things that you thought, heard, witnessed, even listened to being said about people who were uh, facing termination or who had actually had their rights terminated? And I think that the audience will under, understand what I mean by me- metabolizing dirty pain and turning that into clean.
0: Yeah. Let Let me Let me put it in this context of, so serviceability, something you and I talk about a lot. What's serviceable to the system? Well, I think if we if we look at the system from the perspective of a, this is super crass, but I think it's real, right? As a as a commodities business, and the commodity that we're we're trading in is children, and that's some dirty pain. When you're when you're sitting in the, in the seat that I sat in. And when a foster parent is saying, I have no use for this mom, there was no termination. It was still reunification. That was still the goal. So we're not at the point yet of termination of parental rights. Who has, who has more power? Whose voice has more power in shaping the outcome of that case? This mom or this foster parent? I've watched it too many times, right? The foster parent can have way too much influence over the outcome compared to the to the parent anyway. And so this is the pain that that I'm feeling that I didn't fully even understand at the time is that I have responsibility over this foster parent's perspective on some level. I recruited this person. I trained this person. You know, I I set up an opportunity for this person's interest to be met. The interest is to grow my family through adoption. And so if that's my interest, then this this parent is in the way of that interest. And that's, I think that's the dirty pain that I feel, I guess, is I'm facilitating in the interest of that foster parent an outcome that is going to be the destruction of that parent.
1: So, you know, that is, uh, I, I appreciate that. And I think that's that's a real nice way of being politically correct matt but but at the end of Mm -hmm. the day 1997 asma didn't just appear in 97 it was always a legacy of things right so just just quickly believing that me in black body in orange that day in 2004 the institution and the structures This institution that is known as child welfare, Matt, up until that point, for whatever reason, I had trust in the legal system, even though I had been battered, bruised, taken advantage of by police officers and never had an outcome that was favorable for a human being when I appeared in anybody's courtroom. Right. I get that. But at the same time, there's some things that I have been that have been drilled in me up until that point, Matt. And that thing that was drilled in me was I believed the same system that was oppressing me. I believed in their expertise. I believed that they knew better than I did, Matt. Hmm. That's the kind of dirty pain. I believed a bill of fucking goods. And they were right. all lies. And so that's what I mean by dirty pain. Now, that's dirty. Clean means I held on to that for three, four years into 2007. Now, those those three years was my attempt to never touch what that pain felt like, to push it down. Just like you're saying, parents are perpetrators. Somewhere along your journey, Matt, you're starting to touch and unmask. See, this is the this is the beauty of clean pain. Yeah. Your experiences, the things you have said about parents, the things you've allowed to be said—those experiences don't go away, man. Right, they're right. there. But when you don't acknowledge them, like I had to acknowledge, my position w- grew into. Oh wow. I'm seeing something totally different now that I'm in in this institution that doesn't fit, right? And then eventually, I started to realize, hold up, I'm not a piece of shit. Wait a minute. I'm not even a criminal. Hold up a second. I didn't even lay a finger on my child. So I'm starting to see, because I believe that these people could come in and tell me how to do things. And- there's this message, if you are just like me you'll you'll make it out of this system you'll make it into reunification. Hmm. you'll do these things well, I had to tend matt to to those kinds of wounds, and when I tended to those wounds, I was able to metabolize and really understand okay now I must do something with this right and for a period of time, there was this uh, overcompensating, right? So so it, it, racism has done a, a, a doozy on us, man, because I didn't know. Let me put it like this. I didn't know then that people didn't think about those things because I believed that people cared. Then at the time, Matt, in 2004, I didn't know what the outcome was. I hadn't met ASFA. I didn't even know that I was meeting ASFA. I'm gonna be perfectly right. honest with you. I didn't know. I didn't know I was meeting this this law who had just got out of diapers, right? I didn't know, right? So, yeah. So, so there's a, there was a lot to to like try to discern and, and piece together, and it was all you, you mentioned. You mentioned alone uh, for a period of time. That's what I felt, at least. Yeah. I don't believe I was though, but I, I, I that's what I felt. You know
0: what I mean? Sure. So I want to um, I want to take us way back, Corey. So we've 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 set we've set some stage here in terms of the, the conversation, um, and what this what this is really getting us into. But I, I think that because we've talked about this in different ways before, Corey, but for your experience of the judge, right, who terminated your parental rights. Pulling from memory. Right? Did that? Did that judge know anything about the man, the human, the father, Corey, in in that decision-making process? Right. And so that's part of what we're up against here, just the pure lack of humanity. So, just that. That being said, I I want to go back to where it begins for you. I want to take you back to six hundred and fourteen G Street Northeast, all the way back into to D.C. where where you're from. And I want to start that by asking about your mom and some of the things that she taught you. And you said something that was interesting that, um, you know, my mom was always the same person, but she wore different uniforms, right? So as a, a police officer, as a nurse, like literally in different uniforms, and that taught you something about power, you told me. And so I want to go back to to young Corey as a kid and, and your relationship with your mom and what that taught you about power.
1: Yeah, man. So... 614 G Street it's uh <laughs> vague memories but vivid ones even in teenage years my godmother and her family lived on G Street my uncle's friends and family lived on G Street so it was always the village it was always the nest right you know my my mother believed in this philosophy and it's basically something that we've heard in sermon and i'm gonna i'm gonna say this clearly one like you raise a child in the way they should go they'll never stray even if they're straying right so my people's mat raised me as if i was an eagle so my nest was strong the twigs were unbreakable Now, there were some knocks that made me feel like I was low, but I always knew that my family loved me, especially my mom. And I say, with you know, I say that she was always the same person because she never she never wavered from her belief in her own humanity. She never really took too much shit from people either, right? But let me let me go back to around junior high, right? I think that that is the period of time that was formidable for my relationship with with power and I mean abusive power. So growing up in a police household is challenging for a young a young black child in Washington D C, right? <laughs> it, 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 it 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 is not the it's not the rigidity of law enforcement in the household my my mother was not strict my my house was the house that if friends were having issues in their own homes my house was the spot right my mother believed that we do things there you, you're safe here so home was always a, a a brave and a safe space my mother also had me young so to some degree We grew up together. So, for those black bodies listening to this conversation, mom and I were cool, right? Like, we were cool with each other, right? I didn't disrespect her, didn't curse her, anything like that. But the power piece is that her colleagues and the Metropolitan Police Department weren't the best sort of people, right? So, there's talk like you hear when you were in the, the foster industry. This talk about dehumanizing young black men, how they deserve certain treatment. And these things hit me hard because as a child, these are my peers they're talking about. And you got to understand that the, the societal context, we're dead smack in the middle of the crack e- epidemic. And we know what was being said about young black urban youth, right? Right. So there have been. Were
0: tough- what what year is this? Sorry to interrupt, but just, just to locate us, like as as you're a, a young teenager coming up in D C. What I don't want to age you yeah. too much here, Corey, just, but just ask you what hey, what years I, are we talking I, about?
1: I am fifty and I'm I'm telling you, Matt, I said I was born on high. I'm fifty. I'm good with that. I am yeah. good with that. So this is the late eighties.
0: Late eighties, early nineties. Early
1: nineties, right? So D C was being seen as something that was not so nice, right? Held held a couple of crowns, unfortunately, of murder capital of the world, this, that, I mean, of the nation. So all of that was happening, right? Yeah. And I noticed the differences in rank. So there were white shirts and there were blue shirts. And I had to write an essay in uh, eighth grade English class. And I wrote an essay about white and blue shirts. I wish I had it to read today, right? I never knew that that was going to be a pivotal moment in my life. But something was happening in my environment that stuck with me and that I I came to school with that. And I wrote about the power differential uh, between the ranks. The, The lower ranks seemed to do whatever the white shirts wanted them to do. And so this is like being in that cage. So even though the blue shirts were oppressors themselves, they were going against their own humanity for security, benefits, the code of blue, the silence, the protection that the white shirts could bring them. And I can only imagine, right, I'm assuming at this point that there's a lot of uh, coercion and threats coming from the white shirts to do certain things. and some of this conversation happened in my home about how the abuse of power trickled down right and again that is where i pulled from that era in my life to understand when i started to touch the dirty pain and move it to clean so all of these things connect to who i had to, to who I'm, I'm actually becoming but you asked me You asked me a question straight up, like, who are you? And did the judge ask? Matt, there's so many things that I have done in my life that are like super, super positive that actually shape the work that I do today. I worked in the Pentagon for two years. Thank God to Mayor and Barry, right? Uh, And he has a reputation. But for us city kids, then he is mayor for life right? I went on to work in three law firms in Washington, D.C. You know, you talk about policy change, right? And and abolition. Just remember, Matt, when pay phones were 10, 15 cents, right? And then you probably remember if you ever used them, Matt, that they changed around 95, 96 to 75 cents some places, a dollar some places, right? Well, a young Corey Best was at the time Learning how to read aeronautical maps and filing pleadings at the Federal Communications Commissions and the Securities and Exchange Commissions as well for private radio tower owners, right? To create grids so that Bell South companies could buy those up. So, long story short, I was a part of a group of paralegals and law firms that helped to push the 1996. Uh, f c c amendment so again uh there's a lot to a person's story proverbial story that we right you know but no, the judge ain't asked none of that, none of that mattered <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah exactly i mean and 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 why should it <laughs> why should it right?
1: why should it it, it was useful pulling from memory right
0: right yeah exactly, but then yeah, it's interesting. Corey, I mean, I I don't know I don't know these things about you. And and I suspect, you know, people that you interact with, you know, these days in your they don't know a lot about like where did where did Corey come from? And I think this is, you know, not to move into a different topic for too much here, but you know, I know one of the things we've talked about and that you talk about is this idea of lived experience right and so there's there's something here that's coming up for me around you know well if if the importance of what Corey brings to the table is his lived experience we're still probably pulling from memory and we're not understanding the the full story of what Corey's all about where you come from and and how you how you move in the world that's a miss right yeah
1: and it, it, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a huge miss and i have uh I have rejected that because none of us are or should be seen as tokens, right? I believe that there are no experiences that are, that are not lived. And in many ways, they all shape uh, the work that I do to really understand the institutional harms that are continuing to, to happen to people, including myself. So for me to even share the, the, the snippets there, Matt, it's for a purpose. And the purpose is not for anybody to come to me and say, Oh, I didn't know that happened. I'm so sorry about that. Save your sorries. If there was one reason why I am having this conversation today, Matt, and it it is really because, uh, ASFA just has to go.
0: Yeah. Hmm. So let's, we're going to definitely get into that. and, whether we get into it in this conversation you know we've we've talked about doing maybe a series of, conver- of conversations here so that we can really unpack what it means to say asfa has to go so adoption safe families act i think we we want to really unpack what a statement like asfa has to go means and where that comes from for you is this place that that i actually want to get into a little bit more before we start talking about the policy itself ASFA's passed in, what, 1997, I think. And so we've just been sort of hitting some of the, the highlights of, of early life, Corey, right? Um, you know, growing up in the late 80s, early 90s, you shared with me, Mayor for Life, Marion Barry, sets up some some work programs that I think you were able to get involved with as a kid coming up. And then, you know, you worked for the Pentagon, you worked for law firms, like all as a as a young man, I guess, right? Like just getting started in your career in DC. And so that that's what, getting us into the late 90s. So help kind of fill the gap between late 90s and 2003, I think, when Corey, your first son, is born, is taken, or I think he's born in 2001, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I do appreciate this line of inquiry because it, it connects to, like, habitually being able to to pull from and also unmask what was happening in my life through certain time periods. Why might they have been? And so in the early nineties, I left the law firm in ninety six. So I went to culinary school. Okay. Yeah. So I'm 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 a certified chef. Okay. Right? <laughs> I didn't know that either. So I worked in and around the city for catering companies and a couple of restaurants and hotels. And I also, because of the connections at the law firm, I worked for some corporate catering companies and was able to help facilitate some of the, the gigs that we got. So I've always been a, a person, Matt, that valued relationships. So from... 95, 96 to, to 99, life for me became a lot more challenging. And, you know, it was not, no substances involved or anything like that. I think it's, I think what many people do know is that I'm approaching 17 years of sobriety in June, right? So my thought process, because to me everything wasn't going well in my life. So I believed that if I, if I left DC, and change, you know, took my little culinary degree to a Mecca for food, right? Didn't want to go north, right? Didn't wanna go Chicago. So I said, let me go down to where Emerald is. Yeah. Right? So I go, I carry my ass down to New Orleans.
0: Was he already a thing yet in the late nineties? Yeah, yeah, man, he was. Yeah, he was. He was the king he, back then. He,
1: again, man, you know people experience certain things you wouldn't. Eat. Like I watch Food Network more than I watch ESPN in the nineties. Like, like yeah. that's a love that that's a thing that I I yeah. can do today, uh, and just love it because I don't have to come home smelling like shrimp.
0: I'm a huge sports fan but I probably watch Food Network more today than I do ESPN. Yeah. And so, so I'm I'm with you on all that. Right? Yeah.
1: So I wanted to go to New Orleans and I wanted mm-hmm. to learn some staples and I wanted to understand the culture. I wanted to understand mm-hmm. Creole culture. I wanted to understand what was happening in New Orleans, you know, Louis Armstrong, Tremé neighborhood, all of this rich culture and beautiful blackness mm-hmm. was really calling me because i'm also steeped and have been steeped in in that revolutionary plight since the 70s and born on 614 g street i mean i'm blocking half mm-hmm. from from the race riots right so all of that is a mm-hmm. part of my legacy to stand again on an on a nest that's built on high i never internalized racism to a point that I felt that I was less than anybody in this world based on how my family raised me. It was when institutions got involved that I started to question my own uh, abilities in life. But at the same time, I worked for a few in in New Orleans. And in 2000, met a woman and we got pregnant. And eventually, we had Corey Bernard Best, and he's not—he's not, he's not a, a a junior. I don't know why, man. I, I didn't like the word junior, right? So, right. My my nickname for him was Deuce. So like Corey the Second, right? Deuce. And, and you know what's what's also interesting? In two thousand and one, Corey was born, and I was twenty seven. And Matt, what's bizarre is that I envisioned, as a young kid, that I would have my first child at twenty-seven, and this was envisioned, and it wasn't like a hundred percent planned either, right? So to to have Corey at twenty-seven also meant something to me. That was ten twenty-four, oh one, so we raised Corey for three years of his life.
0: Can I ask you about that that day actually? Because now now I'm curious, right? So, yeah, you always envisioned having your first child or having a child at 27. Yeah. So on that day that Corey comes into the world, it happens, right? Yeah. So I wonder, just going to that day, what you what you remember of it, like what what was going on for for you? What were you? Were you feeling that day when when it happens at twenty seven? Can you can you just wait another couple of days? Like oh, really? I'm like, oh. You? You're like I'm not not ready. What you've had twenty seven right. years. Right. What, what just broke? What happened? Right. <laughs> like
1: honestly, I remember the day like it was yesterday. Right, and uh, we're also talking a, a little over a month since 9-11
0: mm-hmm. right
1: well wow. and so uh that was i mean truly a happy day like just filled with with joy and pride and uh cut the umbilical cord i mean i was there for mm-hmm. the whole for the whole thing yeah. right mm-hmm. yeah i mean it, it's it's something that <laughs> how do you describe a child being born other than just a miracle? Right, yeah, truly uh, yeah. A, a miraculous moment. Uh, to to, yeah, that's that's the least. You know, I uh, so when when he was born, uh, you know, we were experiencing poverty, but it wasn't anything that again yeah. systems hadn't really like impeded my thought process. To, to okay, I mean, law enforcement and all the other institutions i i knew where they stood especially in new orleans louisiana right i had a clear understanding of what they mm. thought of me right i got that part but an institution to, to come in and derail and change the trajectory of one's life was foreign right. to me it was foreign man right it was it was truly yeah. truly a foreign concept to me I, I, And now I know in retrospect for a lot of reasons. I I know that I've gone to school with kids who are in foster care and who have been adopted. But there's some shame and secrecy there. We don't just broadcast that. So I didn't know a lot of that about coming up as a a child. But um, so Corey, healthy, happy, didn't go without anything. And then 2004 happened, January 3rd going into the morning of January fourth, two thousand four, removal happened. You know, what was um also hard to to witness is that so I was being arrested for a warrant. I thought that I was just gonna go to jail. So I I mean, there's there's so much more to to that experience, that moment. But I remember that day being escorted to the squad car, and you know, and I'm thinking that okay, I'm 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 going to jail, and that's not cool. But it ain't the first time, so I'm I'm cool. But then, right? But then, so the officers go, I didn't even think about this until you asked me that question. White shirt come, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right? Right? White shirt come. And and, uh, he goes upstairs. I'm still on the corner in the car. And next thing I know, Matt, he was coming back downstairs. And he handed Corey over to the officer in the passenger seat of the squad car. That was the transport. So we both went away in that same squad car. And I didn't know what was going on at the time. It just felt like super prickly and that this was something that I had no preparedness for. So I asked them, you know, hey, let me, can I give them a hug? Right. They told me where they were taking them. Right. But they didn't let none of that happen that Past that officer got out of the passenger side with my son. He went into a, a door that was dark and I got transported to Orleans Parish Prison. And so that was, like I said, January 4th in the morning. And then by December 10th of that same year, Judge Ernestine Gray was terminating my rights. six of those months, I was incarcerated. So the reason for termination was lack of contact. You know, this is a, again, like I said, I, I met ASFA in, in 2004, but I didn't know how vicious that young law, right? The, The law was young, what, seven years old. I didn't realize you, you had this 12 to 15 month, arbitrary timeline then. Um, So, you know, I'm sure people have a lot of questions. Well, what was happening and what was the reason for removal and all of these things? Well, I was incarcerated for six months. I had no ability. They didn't come and transport me to visitation, right? They didn't bring him to the jail. Uh, I had a crappy attorney. The only time that I was transported from jail to anything that was court-related, dependency court-related, was for termination.
0: And there must have been dependency court hearings in between those 11 months, right? I mean, it's not removal, December 10th, termination hearing, but never were you brought in to be part of any of those.
1: No. And when I got arrested the day of the night of removal, I was released within three days, right? I was released for that charge. Then there were, let's go meet the caseworker. Let's go meet the investigator. So I got interviewed about things. I uh, went to as many visitations as I could before I was actually arrested on another charge, right? So, So it wasn't like he was removed and I stayed in jail that whole time. That's not how that went down. And the reason why I mentioned that is because there was an evaluation done on me uh from a psychologist. And it basically came back. I mean, not basically it did come back that Corey best is not a harm or a threat to his child, right? He hmm. has some issues with, yep. with
0: substance. Yeah. And I'm sure the other thing that people are wondering about right now too is just Corey's mother at at this time. Because obviously, well, I don't know. I mean, I assume that both Parents' rights were terminated.
1: Yeah, we both were in orange. Uh, both rights were terminated. But, you know, Matt, I think that, you know, talking about this this and both here, like there, where I am as far as what, what I do for freedom today as a lifestyle, there are other leaders in this ecosystem that's sort of doing the same things. And I say that because there aren't any heroes in this environment, Matt. But I think it's important to go back to something you said, Matt. And that was, uh, did the judge know this, right, and while I was in front of her? Well, she didn't ask many questions. Uh, but what I can tell you now is that the honorable ernestine gray and myself we have had a conversation uh only one so only one conversation because i felt it was necessary for me to uh before sharing any of this with anybody else in the world that she knew the connection that we had with one another to be fair right? Because I I, I don't want to bash her and I don't annihilate. I'll just tell you straight up, I don't annihilate black bodies in public. Like if I got a beef with you, we can talk about it, right? (laughs) But like it's enough of that annihilation already, right? We do it.
0: And and not that you need validation, Corey, but I I watched you in action three days ago. Make it very clear that you don't annihilate black bodies in public. And when people are hurting, you get up From behind the table, walk into the audience and give a young man a hug that needed a hug. Like you, like this is part of like from judgment and punishment to love and belonging. Like I, I just, I just want to say that because I've because you you embody it, right? I've I've watched you show love to people in in moments where, you know, that's what was required. And so yeah, anyway, keep keep going.
1: Yeah, you know, so it touching that clean paint allows me to feel. With love, right? And it's not all about what I want other people to do to me. I think people deserve that. I think people are all deserving of that. And that was my reason for wanting to have a conversation with Judge Gray is because I believe she deserves love. And uh, and I wanted to, to share with her our experiences because I thought that it would be uh, a remarkable Way to expose some of the systemic harms. Back to that white shirt, blue shirt, right? I I know that she's in a position to do things based on the law, Uh, but at the same time, we have a hero today that has also built her her reputation on terminating people's rights. And so, it's not that I want to expose that, Matt. It is that I wanted to talk to her, and we did, and. Only then in two thousand and twenty one is where she asked me different questions. What was life like then? What made you come to New Orleans? Similar questions to what you're asking me today to get to know the person, right? Uh, you know, after initial shock, of course, right? She was a little shocked, like, yeah. oh wow, I don't know yeah, I don't yeah. know what to do with that, right? <laughs> we we laughed and, and it it's all good, right? It's it's no no beef right. there right i don't want the world to think that it's not a beef there but since this is my experience i have every right every right to 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 talk about it and own it as i as i want um and you know through that conversation a couple of things that stood out to me one was she asked me all these questions about what's going on in my life. And I asked her, imagine if you would have asked me that from the bench, you may have seen me as a human being. And the second thing that stood out to me is that she initiated a a, a pretty humorous, comical conversation and said, we should write a book. Right. And we talked about what that book would be like, because this doesn't happen in dependency, right? You don't, Like a judge, I can only imagine, a judge that terminates somebody's rights never thinks that they're ever going to see that person a day in their lives. And look at what we're both attempting to do in the work, right? So we talked a little bit about what the story would be. man. And she says the story would be how parents change. Now, that that was prickly. There was a charge when she said that, but I... I nicely, because I respect her. Like, it's, she's, I mean, she deserves respect. I get it. Uh, I said nicely. That wouldn't be the story. The story is, like, what has happened in your life from 2004 to now that you don't make the same decisions today? Something happened, and I think that that's the story. And, Matt, I'll just tell you, because we've talked. Another thing you, you don't know is why I say what is your role as the oppressor right you you know I you know I asked that question but you never really knew what drove me there two two reasons we do a good job at examining the impact of racism we don't do a good enough job at exposing whiteness and the ideology behind it so we really don't examine racism right and that conversation prompted me to think about what has racism cost you and what has been your lived experience as an oppressor. If folk will not touch that, we're going to resume with unmetabolized pain, which is trauma just waiting to exact itself in any moment.
0: And in that in- instance, too, just to... because. Judge Ernestine Gray is a black woman, right? And so to have that moment in this context of this judge examining her role as the oppressor, yeah, is a challenging conversation. Yeah, you know the thing that's that's really kind of interesting here, powerful here. Thinking about in two thousand four, Judge Ernestine Gray was a judge in in New Orleans. She happened to be the judge on your case who terminated your parental rights. and in 2021, she was a much more nationally prominent, recognized, I don't know, advocate or, or leader in the child welfare field as a, as a judge, right? And so she'd kind of arrived in that position, in that stage in her career. And you guys are sharing, you know, stages, so to speak, or literally sharing stages. I think that the story of, of parents change right i mean i think you know when you say that it just it it connects for me too because that's been my perspective at times right where like the the story is that that people change you know people recover right but i think what what's completely missed when that's the storyline is not just the the experience of the oppressor but also the context in which is created for the parent when it's this is up to the parent to change. Right? That that we're creating a, a scenario where we're not only just requiring somebody to change, but we're missing all of the understanding of who that person truly is in a way that would allow us to interact from a place of love and belonging. So it's just to me anyway, it misses the mark of what's really required. You know, I
1: believe that uh I, I appreciate that. I when I think about this notion of of change, we're all changing. To what and for what is ultimately a question that I have had to ask myself and and why. This political analysis that I, I have comes from ancestral teaching voices and pioneers who have done it before me. It requires me to know myself in this institution, in this arrangement, And it requires me to see, one, myself and others, and also how they're arranged, right? Now, there's a risk to telling yourself the truth. James Baldwin says that you're going to have a conundrum that you face. And there are going to be some consequences to you telling yourself the truth. Those consequences are going to make you do something different. Now, I believe that... Honorable Judge Gray and so many others have done some of this work on their own, but they haven't revealed the ugly secrets of what made them want to change, how destructive these decisions were on their morality. Because if these were humane decisions, no one would want to change. But the way that we're constructed right now, Matt, you don't want to risk a reputation of being a hero in this space to come back and say, "Oh wow, I've done some really horrible things," and we know as human beings that we have. But I, I, I mention that because Nikki Giovanni, I, I'm looking at it right here. She says, "Matt, if if you don't understand yourself, you don't un- you don't understand anybody else. So if you don't understand your role as an oppressor, right?" you realize that you're always going to be unable to 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 really unmask the ideology in which you move so when you put this weight on uh the parent, the bad guy, the criminal, the person to to come back into the environment and talk about being an ambassador for for change yeah well, that's a deflective strategy and a distractive one as well, because you put that person under the microscope, sometimes you take credit for that change,
0: right? Yeah. And and the, the way that that always goes down too, right, is that we want to bring Corey back to have Corey tell the story of how he changed. Right. Because then it just fits the narrative that storyline is all about, that parents change, people change. And I think that the proximity process, the reason that we have these conversations, is to get at the point that this has nothing to do with Corey on, that, on, on some level, right? That this is about me. This is about Matt. This is about Judge Gray. This is about change starts with me, right? That I have to understand what's happening to me, what my story is, what my truth is, what my contributions are, what my participation is. What am I, like you say, Corey, what am I saying yes to? And if I'm saying yes to the narrative that Corey has to change, that I'm completely missing the reality that, but I'm the one that's doing the harm here.
1: There's no bravery in that, right? I mean, if you go back to what you you said, why did I leave DC? I left DC because I believed in environmental change. If the environment changed and therefore I'm going to be good. Man, all of that, all I did for those years was just say that you got to change and not me, right? Right. At the core, Corey's, my behavior's changed. I have remained the same. My behavior's changed. Yeah. Right? I've changed the way I move. I changed the way I think because I tried it the other Mm -hmm. way around, right? And I think that Mm -hmm. this is what happens with positional power. We believe we can think our way into better living damage, you got to live your way into better thinking. That's
0: right, because yeah. the
1: mind is filled with memory, Matt. You got to let the body help you repattern yourself into better thinking. Period.
0: Yeah. And there's something too that you're making me think about with this this idea of pulling from memory, right? Like, so so in the context of you standing in front of a judge, and your rights are about to be terminated. There's absolutely the truth, I think, anyway, I believe this, that that judge is pulling from memory of past parents that have stood in front of her. But she could also say, well, this isn't about Corey changing, this is about me changing. And what would it look like for me as a judge to be a different type of person here? Like, What if, what if this judge was pulling from the memory of, of who Corey has always been? Corey came from this nest on high. Those, are, those memories are, are there, legacy memories, right, that go back before you were born. And let's pull from those memories of, of, who, of who Corey is. And that requires a judge to come from a very different kind of orientation because we're built on judgment and punishment. Corey did something that I'm here to judge. That's where Corey starts and stops, right? And so now I have to, I have to, I have to punish because this is, this is the way the system works, right? But if I, don't, if I don't align with that, if I don't believe in that, if that orientation, that way of doing my job corrupts my own morality, then I have to, I have to change. I have to be different. And perhaps I could pull from, from the memory of Corey's legacy.
1: You know, Matt, there are all... So racist ideas, as Ibram Kendi talks about, have only evolved. Right. So it's gone from Mm -hmm. enslavement is good for black bodies. Then that morphed into incarceration is good for society. But those incarcerated must be black bodies because there's something absolutely different and wrong with them. So for any judge, I go back to just old school teaching. How you treat me, Matt, says more about you than it does about me. Right. So, for 19 years, and a good chunk of those 19 years, I believed that I was being punished. But I tell you, right now, just a few hours away from seeing my son for the first time since he was three years old, I never felt like I'd been away from him after talking to him these past couple of weeks. I don't feel like there has been any time missed. I just haven't seen him in presence because the attempt to fracture a relationship that I have with my child, your honor, it failed and it failed miserably. The courts, the adoptive parents, they have had an ability to curate a lie. Matt, so you have a child now that's 22 years old. And if you thought you were punishing me, a man who was born on high, who did you ultimately hurt? Right? No physical contact. But Matt, all of the spiritual contact, all of the emotional contact, every way that I've learned to behave differently, to think differently, will and has touched my child. I hear it, and I have no questions about why it happened because it was supposed to be happening. Dorothy Roberts talks about shattered bonds- those are physical bonds being shattered. This relational bond that I have with my child is unbreakable unbreakable right? You know it's not about who's better or who's worse, but man this this ideology and thinking that. You have some type of magic to just punish people and yeah. destroy their lives. It's corrupt thinking, right? And it and it it's not true.
0: It's not true. It's, it's, not, not, true. it's not true. Right, right. Because love and belonging transcends the physical realm. Right. Like let's let's just take it to a place that I, I, a very spiritual place. If whatever you believe, like however you're oriented, right. Love and belonging transcends. There's a connection that we all have, and a father-son connection runs deep, right? But that connection has nothing to do with laws. It has nothing to do with the physical realm. It has nothing to do with the, the existence that we have from birth to death, right? It transcends all of that. So you and your son belong to one another. You and your son are connected from before he was even born, before you were even born, really. Right. Right, that will exceed the Corey's physical expression on Earth. I, I, I think that's my belief anyway. To take it to that place, and and here you are now on on the on the precipice of being able to, after 19 years, to connect again in the physical world because that's important. That matters.
1: Yeah, you know, you
0: know, but, but yeah,
1: it, it, it's it's deeply spiritual. Without going too deep into that, I, I also look at it again, Matt, from historical context. Through the attempt to throw me away, there has been fractured relationships that now, so the, the institution of racism and how the courts are constructed, it has only again shown itself to create traumatic environments for individuals like myself and others to be strong. The only thing I know how to be right now is strong. Uh, the only thing that families and parents who have gone through these experiences like me get to do is do more fucking work. More work on the repair. More work on the tending to the wounds. We have a 22 year old, my son, who has made me a grandfather, right? I have a two year old granddaughter who I'm going to meet in a couple of hours. And. Through this attempt to destroy and throw me away, they've also given a message to the adoptive parents that it's okay to lie to this child for the rest of his life. He doesn't have to know who this guy Corey Best is because what we're going to do is throw him away. We're going to erase this birth certificate and he's going to be yours, a bundle of light-skinned black joy for the rest of your life. And so you have a child right now who is sort of vibrating from the fact that the people he thought were his parents all of his life are not. And for the Judge Gray and others of the world, that shit is just not okay. I'm strong enough to deal with it. So this ain't about me no more. Because I have learned through the institution and this ideology that I'm good for stuff. And you talked about commodities, right? I'm good to do work. That's all I'm good at, right? I know how to work. I know how to stay strong. But that's not all I want to be good at. And, Matt, these are harms that not one piece of evidence can come back and say I'm the common denominator in this one. Not one piece of evidence can come back to say that. I'm the one who knocked this domino block over and made this happen. This happened because of somebody and a compilation of somebody's decisions to say that that young man in orange right there is not worthy of being seen as a human being. He's not worthy. And even if I had done something destructive to deserve, and I don't think anybody deserves to have their rights severed, but even if the court has some type of scientific evidence to say that you deserve this one, I li- I now know from my 22 year old son, it didn't matter what the hell you did. It's my story, and I should have known about it the whole time.
0: Yep, I think that um...
1: drastic fail when you think. Right. I mean, it's it, it's like the death penalty, Matt. Like I yep. felt like for 19 years, I got I got shot with the hot shot, and I survived it. Hmm. So how do you come back from the civil death penalty? The only way right. I know to come back is to ask people to come and join me, so this shit don't happen to other people.
0: That's right. And I think that that's a, a place to pause for now, Corey. Let's let's pick up on a couple threads here, right? So you're gonna you're gonna go meet meet your granddaughter, right? Yeah. Granddaughter, you're gonna go meet your granddaughter for the first time. (laughs) You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna see your son for the first time in 19 years. You're gonna you're gonna meet his partner, Mm -hmm. right? Like, man, like this is gonna be a good weekend. Yeah, it's gonna be a good weekend. It it is. So I I I think we should pick up with how that all went and why you want to ask other people to come along for the ride of We should not be doing this to people asfa has got to go as you said let's pick up on those two threads but let's let's hit the pause button here and and uh i appreciate you Corey, and i'm excited for you for this weekend
1: yeah i'll let you know what's happening man i shoot your text a couple of pictures
0: yeah please please do please do yeah All right. Before we end today's episode, as always, I want to say thank you to Corey for coming on the show. But even more than that, I just want to say special thanks to Corey for being a friend and being part of my process. And my hope is that this conversation has piqued some some curiosity, some interests around ASFA and TPR. And if so, I invite you to join the podcast club that meets every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. Um, So next Monday and the following Monday, um, Corey will be joining us and we'll be able to pick up on a lot of the threads that run through this episode and the second episode that's coming. So um, as always, you just go into the show notes and of the, the podcast, you'll see uh, my LinkedIn page there and just just message me on LinkedIn and I'll get you the link to the podcast club and you're always welcome to join us every Monday morning. Okay. Special thanks to our production team. So thank you to Michael Tex Osborne at 14th Street Studios, Evan Scherer for production support, and Christian Hygis for original music. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you.